throughout history on this earth, humankind has been joined together for over a millennia by a single action, progress. Whether this progress was our ability to cook food or develop a device that allows us to connect to anybody in the world or access the wealth of information ever recorded, we humans have depended on our extraordinary ability to collaborate and create new codes. Codes that allow us to function as we move forward together as a society. I'm Craig James, your host, and you're listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. This season on Big Audacious Idea, we're examining the human experience in the face of uncertainty and change. When it comes to using available resources to create a new technology or an output, Phil Ourswald describes code as the how that gets us to that point. Phil has joined us today on Big Audacious Idea to provide perspective on how we have developed code in the past and what code might look like in the future. Phil is an economist and author. His most recent book, The Code Economy, A 40,000-Year History, describes how intertwined technological and social progress is with the human experience itself. Phil knows a thing or two about being human, about the economy, and has a thing or two to say about the changes we're experiencing in our world right now. He's a big, audacious thinker. Phil, thank you for joining the show. It's just great to have you with us. To start, would you give us a quick one-two? on you. Greg, thanks so much for having me on the show. And for that intro, I am an economist by training. I've had the privilege and joy of working in the area of entrepreneurship and innovation for most of my career. I have my own um, ventures as well. And in the context of that work, have had the opportunity to think a lot about the nature of production, the nature of human interactions in a social context, which is really you know the essence of uh, the entrepreneurial undertaking. And um, you know, and also as we're going to be discussing, you know how people most effectively associate to be creatives and to be creators. Well, thank you again. And what's so interesting, Phil, in your latest book, The Code Economy, is uh, you're not talking about this quarter or this month. So often we do that in business. Uh, you're not even talking about this year necessarily or this decade or century. You're looking at a big picture, a long-term future. And you also dip into the way long ago past, 40,000 years. T tell us a little bit about that kind of lens and why it's useful to look at things that way. Well, I didn't start out with the intention of writing a book that had a 40,000 year and, you know, as we'll get to, perhaps it actually <laughs> extends back further than that, really kind of 400,000 year uh, of human uh, history framing. Um, but, you know, it ended up that way. The book initially was about the uh, disruption in the world of work, something about which there's been a huge amount of discussion and exchange in the last decade. And I was certainly aware that this uh, this discussion extended Ended back into the 1960s, there was a very uh, sort of vital and vibrant uh, set of, of conversations and writings and congressional hearings and so forth and so on about automation and what it was going to mean for the future of work in the 1960s. And a, a great 
thinker, a great economist named Herbert Simon uh, was one of the sort of primary contributors in that. He was also a foundational figure in the world of computing, uh, wrote the first computer program that defeated a human being in chess. The human being was an eight-year-old, but nonetheless, it's still an achievement for the 1950s. Um, and anyway, as I kind of peeled that onion, um, it really turns out that this, uh, this interaction between how we think about uh, the way in which we organize ourselves in productive activities, which is really what automation is about, and the human experience uh, goes back really as far as as humanity itself. And so it was really kind of just following that uh, following that thread back to sort of its mm -hmm. origins. Well, it puts things in perspective for sure, because again, in our society, I think we we think in terms of minutes and seconds, and not necessarily thousands of years. And that perspective is very useful. Now, what's fascinating is that you spoke to a couple concepts that really struck me, and uh, back with a business lens, I think about outsourcing. And I think you said, uh, you know, long ago we learned to outsource some of our digestion process. I think that's fascinating. And you also talk about chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> Take us down that journey, if you would. Yeah, well, two two different themes. So for the outsourcing of digestion, um, and that's where the 400,000 years came in, you know, it, it turns out that one of the most significant things we did as a species was about, you know, 400,000 years ago, roughly speaking, uh, we had the idea to uh, slice tubers, you know, say, um, you know, you might think about yams, um, basically pound meat before we ate it. And that that slicing and pounding uh, had the effect of essentially pre-digesting uh, what we were eating, and that lessened the burden on our own digestive system. And that meant that it freed resources, energy resources of our body to feed what it, you know turned out to be and developed into uh, not just a larger, but importantly, more densely interconnected brain. It is that larger, more densely interconnected brain that allowed the human species to differentiate itself from the rest of the animal kingdom, for better or for worse, and that really, um, you know, sort of was the origin of human history. And that that was an outsourcing process. We had something that we were doing literally internally in our gut, and we did it externally, and we let uh, sticks and stones do that work for us. Fascinating. So if I get this right, then, uh, that helps us sort of breathe in and understand what the concept of code is, uh, that it's a series of steps or a way of being as a human so we can function, thrive, and become prosperous. Am I getting that right? Well, yeah, yeah. And I think that's basically what gets to the second um, sort of theme or, I guess, example uh, in the book that you, that you uh, brought up, which is the chocolate chip cookie. So the thing about code as I use it um, it's it's a sort of idiosyncratic uh, use, and I might have just as well used the word recipe. And the culinary recipe, like, for example, the recipe for a chocolate chip cookie, is not just an example of what I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's pretty much the example. It is the paradigmatic representation of the notion of code. And so you have inputs, you know, the ingredients that you gather uh, for an activity, and then you have outputs, let's say the chocolate chip cookie. Uh, but what's important and actually, sort of from a technical standpoint, interesting to observe, missing an economic theory by and large, uh, but very significant in the human experience, is what you do with the ingredients. And that's what a recipe book is. That's what's printed on the back of the Nestle's um, semi-sweet chocolates uh, bag, the Toll House recipe, is what you actually do with the ingredients to create the chocolate chip cookie. And so this set of practices, if you think about every single meal that 
any human being has ever consumed in human history. There have been human beings. They have eaten. They have eaten raw food. They have eaten prepared food. If they prepared the food, perhaps it was by pounding and slicing, as I described, and then it became uh, you know cooking of some variety, stages in cooking, spices, whatever. And there have been processes that were followed. And it would have be possible to have observed those processes and to describe them. We could have a compendium of every single recipe used in every single meal consumed by every single human being in human history. In theory, that exists. And that would be an amazing chronicle of human history. That would be a way of talking about, of course, if we think about something like, you know, a Pop-Tart, right? There is a whole production process behind that Pop-Tart Healthy now. and delicious. Healthy and delicious. You know, <laughs> an old favorite of mine these days has sort of slid off of my uh, my daily intake. But, um, but, you know, but there's machinery then that goes behind it. And so you get basically industrial production and what we consume then become linked. And that's why I love the story of Ruth Wakefield and the invention of the chocolate chip cookie. This is one of these apocryphal things where supposedly she was um, ran out of nuts for a uh, butternut, uh, sorry, a butterscotch nut cookie that that she was in the habit of making and, and decided to use, um, you know, chunks of uh, Nestle's uh, semi-sweet chocolate and then was delighted uh, and surprised when it, when, when it turned out that the chocolate didn't actually melt into the cookie, but sort of maintained its form. And, you know, there go, ergo the, you know, the, the, the birth of the chocolate chip cookie. Well, it turns out that, that Ruth Wakefield um, was an astoundingly successful entrepreneur and, and also an author of a 888-page cookbook that she had written before she invented the chocolate chip cookie. So it's unlikely although possible that this story, you know, is true. It's more likely that she purposefully came up with this recipe. But the real success of Ruth Wakefield and her husband was in the Toll House restaurant. And, and that's a different recipe. And this is the reason I bring this up is that I've been emphasizing culinary recipes, but they came up with a different recipe, which was their operating manual for the Toll House restaurant. And so if you think about, like, for example, a franchise handbook and, you know, franchising has been the most successful uh, model of the growth of businesses that humanity's ever invented. The, the core of the franchising model is a franchising handbook that describes exactly how you do every step of the business in a franchise. And what, what unites the, uh, say, standard operating procedures in a corporation, a franchising handbook um, or, or a culinary recipe is that it's a set of instructions um, and you know, that capture at least significant dimensions of what is done in a recipe. Fascinating. I, you know, what's interesting about this, uh, Phil, is is that uh, quite often we uh, draw parallels. We hear popular terms and we equate them, and then we make an assumption. And when we talk about the concept of code, it's easy to say, "Oh, that's technology." You know, software code. Um, yet, what I'm hearing you saying is, is there's an underpinning, a platform under that, and a concept that has to do with process and a way of being, the way we operate as humans and progress as humans. And so this, of course, ushers in an interesting lens to look at and talk about technology. And we've done so many times here on Big Audacious Idea. And I remember you said in one of your talks, what does scale out technology mean? I remember that catching my attention, but I didn't quite get it. Well, okay, so a couple of things. First of all, the word technology comes from the Greek. Uh, it's a combination of techne, which uh, signifies art, craft, or trade, and uh, logos, 
which signifies an ordered account or a reasoned discourse. And so the word technology literally means an ordered account of art, craft, or trade. Now, if you think about that, an ordered account of art, craft, or trade, it sounds a lot like a recipe, at least it does to me, mm -hmm. or a standard operating procedure <laughs> or a manual, however you want to think about it, right? And so a technology is a way of doing things. A, a technology is not an artifact. A technology is not a program. A technology is a way of doing things. And so, for example, when we think about the, you know, the space shuttle, the technology in the space shuttle is how you build the space shuttle and then how you send it into space, return it safely, so forth and so on. So it's, it is all of those practices. That is the technology. E.O. Wilson has has an amazing uh, book called uh, The Social Conquest of Earth. It's kind of a it's kind of a companion volume to the code economy. Uh, I know I don't know if E.O. Wilson thinks about it that way, but I do. Um, and he covers basically the part of human history that I don't cover, which is say pre forty thousand years, right? And and it emphasized the notion of group selection, essentially that what distinguishes the human species is that we work in groups to solve problems which means we develop technologies. That's what we do. That's what happened in the villages. The villages get together hunting you know, an elephant on the open plains. There is a technology for that. There is a practice. There's a way we do it. And we learn it from each other and we pass it on. So we are surrounded by technology. We are embedded in technology. Our society is an expression of technology. But what's missing is the notion that technology is fundamentally and deeply human. It is about the way we work together to solve problems. And early on when I said, you know, how we best associate to be creatives or creators, what I was really trying to say is that it's that group selection dimension. It is hardwired. It is what we are as a species. Uh, and in fact, it's what differentiated us from the Neanderthals, by the way, which is a story that you know, Wilson tells that I don't. Um, but it's not that we were cleverer uh, or better problem solvers individually. It's that we were better group problem solvers. Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three-times-a-week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. So we've talked a little bit, Phil, about what it is to be human, the way behind being human, the code and the concept of code and technology. And those fundamental definitions are so helpful to our continued conversation. And the second segment of what we're chatting about, Phil, is, is as us humans go about our way and our day, we often do so through commerce and the economy and the market. You know, I, I, I can't help but wonder uh, what your thoughts might be uh, as we look especially to the future, which is our last segment. But if we could just explore a little bit some definitions and the notion of how we live as humans 
humans when it comes to cities and what is work anyway? We use this term work. I got to go to work. What does that mean? Uh, share with us some of your thoughts when it comes to city work and the market. You know, one of the reasons, um, probably the primary reason I ended up titling the book, The Code Economy, wasn't because of computer code. It was because of genetic code. And so um, as I thought about it, recipes, the way we're describing them, are the direct analog to DNA in a biological system. They're instructions that then, if they are successful, get repeated. And so if we think about the economy in terms of its actual structure, in terms of what it actually does, what the economy actually does is encourage, source, potentially scale. And I got to get your scale out question, by the way. I didn't get to that. Um, in, in, encourage, source, scale recipes. A business, a company is a set of practices. To the extent that those practices create an output, a product that is of benefit to others, and to the extent that there are markets and they function somewhat properly and that that which is more effective can be rewarded on the margin as opposed to uh, something that is less effective. So essentially a human social organization that's not just dominated by bullying and coercion, but in which choice uh, is present. And that's that's an essential dimension at some level. But those practices that work better should over time be favored. And in fact, even in those coercive environments, that prohibit those recipes that are more successful to grow and develop, to evolve, to, to dominate the ecosystem more effectively, those systems themselves will fail. And so ultimately, this notion of code actually dominating coercion uh, in the long run, and, and without belaboring the point, you see it in human history, okay? So what does that have to do with cities? It is fascinating to me, and I didn't know this before I started writing the book, that the first city, Chattelhuic in modern day Turkey, was created out of the sort of uh, compulsion, I guess, intent, whatever it is, to organize for a religious purpose. Basically, Chattelhuic was one of these Stonehenge, like the Paleolithic area is full of these large monolith activities, you know, which is fascinating in its own right. But there was something about the Paleolithic. It, was, it wasn't it was just the Stone Age. It was the big Stone Age. They really liked big uh -huh. stones. And this whole, so, you know, so whether you look at Newgrange or Stonehenge or you know, all over the world, um, and then later it was Easter Island, but this is just something that we did. Way before the stones, we were doing stones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And we weren't rolling them. We were dragging them. We were dragging them. So anyway, creating these, these structures, these monolithic religious structures, a uh, whole different subject as to why those existed, what their intent was. But it meant that you just had, it was a lot of work and you need a lot of people. And those people basically uh, aggregated themselves. And then you needed to organize basically what became a city. Well, it turns out that cities are really good places to incubate recipes of all types, not just culinary, of all types. And so, and because we are a social species, that the more our organization mirrors our, our neural functioning, that's not, that's not a coincidence. So um, it is size and dense interconnection. That's the, the defining feature of the human brain is not just size. Elephants have big brains. They're not as densely interconnected. Size and dense interconnection. That's what cities accomplish.
That's the essence of a city, right? And, and it turns out that with cities, the bigger, the better, the more densely interconnected, the better. And so larger has always chunked smaller in the growth of cities for now hundreds of years, really millennia. And so cities are platforms of solved problems. So transportation is a problem. Sewage is a problem. All of the solved problems literally go underground. The sewer system literally goes underground, right? We're now putting power lines underground. We solve things. We literally stand on the solved problems of the past. And then we build on that. So when we think about an operating system and having apps on top of the operating system and then whatever else, you know, that we're going to build on top of the apps and so forth and so on, those platforms are the nature of how we progress over time. And cities are the central platform for human activity. They're the operating system of all operating, the mother of all operating systems are cities. And so it's it's incredibly central to the story that I'm telling and very important for, I think, understanding human history. Well, here's a problem, Phil. There is so much to discuss with you. <laughs> and there's so much yet for us to hit. And as we start rounding out our conversation, I think we wanted to touch on technology a little bit more. But now that we're on the discussion of cities, what they mean, and the critical mass of density and the power of it, I, I can't help but think about, well, how, well, so what? I don't mean to be flipped with that, but like, what does that mean to me? What does it mean to us when we think about uh, our work, about prosperity and abundance in the future? You know, how how is this dynamic shifting and changing? I guess what I'm saying is, can we put our future lens on and uh, see if you could tell us all the answers to our questions regarding what's in store for us as we look ahead? All right. So, so good news, all kinds of good news. Um, you know, even in the last 20 years, more people have been uh, sort of brought out of poverty, escaped from poverty, brought themselves out of poverty um, than, you know, has been the case in all of human history combined. Um, you know, we are on a trajectory uh, that despite whatever someone may perceive at the point in time um, is one that is dramatically increase, decreasing inequality on a global level. So the poorest places are getting richer approaching uh, the living standards of the wealthiest places globally within countries. Different story, totally different conversation. Um, so, so there's all the good news. The bad news is that it is axiomatic in human history that whatever is the greatest accomplishment of the past era becomes the doom and damnation of the following era, right? Um, so, for example, um, to extract our energy sources from the ground, um, rather than killing whales, fellow mammals, to light our street lamps, was a great idea. It was a great and a humane idea to drive fellow mammals, sentient beings, to extinction because they were providing illumination at night was truly cruel. But it turns out <laughs> there's a problem with fossil fuel extraction. Impossible to have known that a priori. And so we have the problem of climate change. With cities, the very success of cities creates a real problem. And I want to highlight Henry George. And so um, Henry George, uh, you know, really one of the great uh, economists of the 19th century, who was uh, actually the best-selling author of, of his era, wrote in the late 19th century. And, and he wrote a book that basically tells the story of modernity. And it is how cities, by their very success, create inequality. And the way they do that, really simple, we can all relate to this, high rents or high mortgages. 
right? Because value is so densely created in cities, then the, the opportunity to be proximal to that value creation also is expensive, is, is, is costly. And so you have a world in which the people who own land become wealthier, the people who don't, don't become wealthier. And followers of Henry George, one follower uh, in particular, around the turn of the century, created a game she called the Landlord's Game. And she was based in Washington, D.C., where I'm from. And that game evolved into the game Monopoly. So more people have been schooled in the political philosophy of Henry George, uh, probably than any other economist, including Adam Smith. Um, but they just don't know it. And, and what is the point of that game? The point of that game is that if you start the game, everybody has equal resources to begin with. The game, the nature of the game is such that one person ends up with everything. And so, and they and do it through land. So what we've had is a world where it is a world of the haves and, and have nots in a sense, but it's the have and have not property. And, and anyway, you know, there's a lot to say about this. I mean, this book by Thomas Piketty, um, you know, Capitalism of the 21st Century, that was really very influential in terms of setting uh, setting the terms of the debate around so-called increasing inequality. Well, anyway, if you unpack those data, and if you look at the last 20 years in the United States and in the countries that, that Piketty focuses on, is the fact that the increasing increase in wealth inequality in the documents can be, can be accounted for pretty much entirely by increases in real estate wealth. So essentially what he's saying is people who owned real estate in the 1980s and 1990s and held on to it then become considerably wealthier relative to the overall population than other people. And we know that's true. Anybody, anywhere you live, what happened to real estate values? Anybody who owned real estate in the 80s and 90s and held on to it, they're in good shape. Other people, not so much, right? And and so when we think about the, uh, I have a piece in the New York Times uh, with uh, June Yun, a colleague of mine, that's about the relationship between the intensity of wealth creation in cities then uh, relatively disadvantages rural places. And so it, it's, it's related to rural or urban divide, rivals of populism, all of these things are embedded in the success of cities. They are the bad thing that happened because of the greatest thing that happened. And there is no way around that, at least in human history so far. There is no good thing humanity has done that does not result in a very bad thing as well. So we're talking about balance and continuum, I hear, Phil. And it's fascinating to hear you draw those distinctions between have and have not, landlord or tenant, wealth or lack thereof, urban or rural. Uh, and I think life is a series of continua. And to that end, and as we think about these various different dynamics and good and bad all in one, and we look to the future and think about what might be good or bad, dependent upon our judgment, um, tell us a little bit of what you what you imagine about the future. Like, for example, I, I can't say how often I'm using my smartphone. Like, it runs my life. You know, is that adding to our freedom or is it constraining our life experience? And we used to have a bunch of kids working on the farm during the agrarian era, and we have maybe one or two or none. What are the key shifts you see when it comes to envisioning what life will be like in the future? Well, I mean, for starters, we talked about the mobile phone. Actually, the book I'm working on at the moment uh, a couple in sort of process, but the, the one that I'm spending more most time on is about the mobile revolution, um, which I think really 
Um, the story I told in my first book, Coming Prosperity, was really about globalization. And I was writing about, I started at the time of the recession. That's why I was sort of talking about the coming prosperity globally, which I still believe is is the story we're seeing. Um, then the second one, Code Economy, what we've just been discussing is, uh, you know, really kind of the frontier of, of the digital economy, you know, and rooted in this history of code and recipes. Uh, but the mobile phone is is a unique artifact. Um, that and the printing press are really the the only technologies we have in human history that have done two things. One is that they have reached the majority of people in the world, and um, very very few technologies do that. Very few technologies reach mo most people. Most people. That's more than fifty one percent, right? The the um, the other is that they accomplished increasing density of interconnection between people, the, the fact that they're communications technologies. So television has reached most people, but it's a broadcast technology. So it's not really a communication. It's not two-way technology. Writing and, and printing, it's a broadcast technology, but it was low enough cost that pamphlets then became the social media of the day. And if you look, you know, at history, you know, over post- invention of the printing press, um, pamphlets were essentially the social media. Mobile phones, though, morphed. Um, and there's a discontinuity in code also. When we think about artificial intelligence and machine learning, it's not a recipe. Uh, it is an algorithm for creating um, observations or insights. It is not a program in the sense that program structured programs were. It is an approach for getting essentially an output where we really don't know where that output comes from. So you combine mobile telephony with the power of the internet, now the power of you know so what we're calling artificial intelligence, machine learning, whatever, and you have an entry into human augmentation. And you know Ray Kurzweil obviously talked about singularity, so forth and so on. Um, I really, you know, I like to think about it as a bifurcation, not a singularity. And and so what's the nature of the bifurcation? The nature of the bifurcation is if robots are taking our jobs, what's left for human beings to do is to be human. Well, that's kind of a cop-out because then you say, well, what does it mean to be human? And that's exactly the point, right? It goes back to 400,000 years ago. If we, if we don't digest things in our stomach, then what's left for us to do? Well, what's left for us to do is grow a larger and more densely interconnected brain. That's what's left for us to do, to change what it means to be human. So these discontinuities change the definition of what it means to be human. And we exploit those domains that have been underdeveloped. And so I'm now finally going to get to scale up versus scale out because I want to leave that one hanging. Um, you know, past success of cities, past success of companies has all been about scale up, right? Be become a unicorn. I'm going to grow my company, right? I'm going to be a billion dollar, $10 billion, $100 billion company. I've got, you know, greater market capitalization like, you know, Tesla does today, uh, you know, more, greater market capitalization than any U.S. bank. Like, how did that happen? So that's a wing. That's a scale up. You know, uh, Elon Musk has scaled up Tesla. But as he scaled it out, the mobile phone is a scale-out technology. Printing press is a scale-out technology. It reaches most people. Recipes themselves, culinary recipes. Nobody, there's no billion-dollar company that led to the creation and, and, and diffusion of the notion of the recipe book. It's like hospice care, right? There is no, there's no monolith of hospice care. It just grew. It just grew because it was shared. It was open source. It was shared. The things that have been the most successful in human history are actually on that model. They're not scale up. They're scale out. And so what we need in the next generation of human history is basically we need scale out technologies that enhance human capacity and that change the definition of what it means to be human so that we can have purposeful work indefinitely. 
And I truly believe that that is not only possible, I believe it's happening. Um, I think that events of, you know, over the past year as we're taping this now, uh, you know, it's July uh, 2020, uh, a lot of things happening in the world. All, everything we're talking about, everything that we've discussed, all of these, these trends, some of there's some discontinuities, mostly it's just an acceleration of all of these trends, a, a dramatic acceleration. And so what exactly face-to-face -face is going to mean, what the future of cities is going to mean, what the future of work is going to mean, what types of activities are going to qualify as in this category of, you know, redefining humanity, redefining the way we create value for each other. All of those are open questions, uh, but they are moving very rapidly. And I actually think in a very positive direction. Well, Phil, you know, one of the beauties of Big Audacious Idea is that we uh, strive to have discussions about, sure, they're time boxed. Sometimes they're about the future or the now. But what we're talking about today is timeless. The human experience uh, is our theme. And you so beautifully uh, breathe life into past, present and future. But it's hard to avoid. We're not talking about current events right now, but you're right. As we record this, it's July 2020 and the pandemic and economic strain, social unrest. There's a lot of things on everyone's mind right now. And it'll be interesting as we listen to this discussion in the future, how we might reflect upon what we're thinking now when it's the past. So this leads, Phil, to a conclusion. And what we love to do here on Big Audacious Idea is make sure we hand to you, our guest, being so gracious with your time, and challenge us, challenge our listeners with a call to action. And sometimes it's just, hey, folks, I'd encourage you to think this or think that or consider this or consider that. And you started naturally going down that path. If you were to issue a challenge to our listeners, uh, Phil, what would that be? One of the challenges is you know, always an always a challenge in a society that's built on on groups and interaction within groups, and that's empathy and understanding. And we need that, you know, always in our relationships with others, but in particular now because the impacts of the events that we have been experiencing again, this is always true, but it's 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 really particularly true now. Um, just are so different on different people. And so for some people, uh, you know, these experiences have not been devastating. Uh, it has been a change in the way that we may conduct our business, the way that we may conduct our social life. But there have been positives as well as negatives. And for other people, that just has not been true. And it has really been, uh, you know, a devastating and sudden and unforeseen blow to to plans, to to the way in which the future, they, we individual people have seen our futures, our futures for our children. I mean, I'm the father of, of, of three daughters, of two of whom now are out, you know, sort of in the world, making their way in their early 20s, just having recently finished college. And, you know, that's a tough time to be uh, to be in your early 20s, um, you know, when you're sort of just building those foundational relationships and, and you know, building your, your, your future, um, you know, we might have called in the past a career, but basically set of things that you envision that you can do in the world, uh, you know, to contribute meaningfully. So I think we, we absolutely need that. But with that as a backdrop, it is so important that we each understand the power of the tools like the mobile phone. You know, I talked about the total mobile phone as a tool of human augmentation. Um, it also can be a, a tool of great confusion. And I think that, um, that, that we need to have a sense of cultivated agency and responsibility 
in everything that we take into our bodies and everything that we take into our minds. And it is something that is every single person's responsibility because collectively the outcomes that we have as a society are the direct consequence of our individual ability to maintain ownership over our own minds and bodies. And having a comprehension of where we are in a historical moment, reading about history, thinking about the future, being responsible in terms of what we take into our minds and our bodies, nourishing ourselves and being respectful and empathetic with others. All of this has never been more important because everything we do is within a social medium. Everything we do is propagated. Everything we do is interconnected. And if we've learned anything from the global pandemic, it is exactly that. But everything, everything we do, ideas, behaviors, just as much as whether or not we wear a mask, affect other people and ultimately lead to the world that we create or don't that is better than the present. Phil, thanks so much for your wisdom, your passion, and sharing with us today. Thank you very much, Craig. Today, we've been listening to Philip Auerswald. I'm Craig James, your host, and this is Big Audacious Idea. This concept of code is a part of everyday life. It's, well, a part of everything. It's the DNA in our human experience. And how does code affect how the world is changing or how we change it? as we look to the future. And, and this is where consciousness around code, awareness is so essential. Some of this has been programmed into our world and if we're not aware of it, certain code could inhibit our progress in the future. And to that point, we realize that sometimes we need to use the code we've created as humans and in other cases, we need to deprogram or decode and change our preconceived notions. So as code develops and evolves and human systems evolve, we still, every step of the way, need to embrace our own humanity and compassion for each other. I'm Craig James, your host, and you have been listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. Let us know what you think about today's chat by tweeting me at cjamescatstrat. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please rate and review us in your podcast app. It really helps. Big Audacious Idea is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Learn more about our podcasts at evergreenpodcasts.com. I would like to thank our producer and audio engineer, William Pritz, production director, Bridget Coyne, and to my co-executive producer, Michael D'Aloya. Thanks for listening. Until next week, don't just think audacious, be audacious. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, 
Happy Happy reading. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.